to Everyday Theology, where we don't tell you what to believe or why to believe it, but rather explore our Christian beliefs and why they matter for us in relation to God, to creation, and to others. My name is Aaron Ross. Welcome back to Everyday Theology. I have... uh, such a fun conversation. At least I think it's going to be a fun conversation. I know it's going to be a fun conversation, if not just for me, since uh, the, my guest with me today is someone that I've done a lot of reading on, working on in terms of my dissertation, and I'm just excited and I can't stop being happy about having this conversation. So today I have with me Dr. Teresa Morgan. Dr. Morgan, thank you so much for joining me today. That's a great pleasure. Thank you. Now, for everyone, Dr. Morgan is currently... Uh, the professor of Greco-Roman history, and uh, she is the Nancy Bissell Turpin Fellow and Tutor at Oriel College in Oxford. And I say currently, but also currently moving towards Yale to actually become, uh, to take the McDonald Agape Professorship in New Testament and Early Christianity at Yale Divinity School. Uh, There's very few times where I think to myself, I should not be having a conversation with someone because they're clearly above my uh, intellectual ability. And this is one of those conversations. So I appreciate already that you're having this conversation and I apologize in advance for any dumb questions I might ask. Um, But Dr. Morgan, would you give uh, our listeners any, anything about you, anything about your story, anything about that you would like to share with them? Okay. Um, Well, for a start, I think I've got to say there are no dumb questions. There are, only interesting <laughs> avenues to explore. Um, uh, so we'll do a, a bit of that. Um, yes, so um, as you said, I currently teach at Oxford. So I'm a classicist by background and original training. Um, although I also many years ago did a degree in theology. Um, and um, as a classicist, I work on uh, various aspects of ancient culture, um, ancient education, and I work a lot on ancient ethics. I'm very interested in the ethics of people below the level of the intellectual elite who write mm. most of our sources. Yeah. So yeah. The ethics of whole groups of people, whole societies. Um, and um, I'm also an Anglican priest. So I was ordained 20 years ago this year. Oh, wow. Uh, so I suppose um, that's, uh, that's why I have ended up um, crossing over a bit between the classical world and the world of New Testament and the early church and patristics. Um, and of course, it makes me a bit of a throwback, really, because of course, 100 years ago, everybody who worked in New Testament um, or patristics and early church history didn't really exist at that point. But everybody who worked on anything to do with um, early Christianity had a background in classics, uh, really, hmm. because not least yeah. because people had done it at school, you know, so, that, right. so it, it was a it was a common crossover. Um, 100 years ago, but it's not so common today. Um, right. But, but it seems it still seems to me that um, my interests are very, you know, are quite convergent, really, to be interested. I'm, uh, my interest in early Christianity is really one aspect of my interest in uh, worldviews and ethical thinking and yeah. thinking about the gods and divine human relationships in the ancient world in general. You know? Yeah. And I think that leads a, a perfect introduction, other than to say, it's interesting. I think my, my podcast is now becoming more Anglican than I ever imagined, huh. uh, just simply because of the guests we've had. Right. Me and my co-host, who's not with us today, are in the Episcopalian tradition uh, and, and ordained in those traditions. So we're just 
apparently I need to change this podcast from being a more Pentecostal podcast of where it started to more Anglican Episcopalian. We'll, we'll see what happens though. Uh, but that, yeah, it is exactly. Um, now in light of that, you, you're talking about this kind of this crossover to thinking about faith, right? From the classics and, and what that means. You know, the first question for, for those who, who may not know Dr. Morgan's work, she's written at least what I consider like the foremost work on what faith, uh, and, and pistis language, this kind of Greek term for faith, uh, what it is within its context, within kind of maybe to use this language, Second Temple Judaism time period, right? That may not have been how you framed it in the text. It was more of, I think, a, a few centuries even before. Um, and and what does that word, what does faith mean within that context, within a Greco-Roman world? And it did make this shift in your book from what did it mean in that world to what does it mean for the New Testament peoples who would have been engaging with this term, especially because it was used so often in the New Testament? And my first question is, what made you really interested in actually even talking about pistis uh, or fides, and, and, and why did you decide to kind of go down this path of studying that, and how did that turn happen to look at it in terms of the church? Yes. Uh, well, um, like most research projects, it was a bit of an accident, and like most research projects, it came out of something else. So <laughs> back in 2007, um, I wrote a book about... Um, uh, pop, what I called popular morality in the early Roman Empire. And this huh. was, I was interested in the moral thinking, the ethical thinking of, you know, uh, ordinary people, people below the intellectual elite. And I mm. thought, I argued that you can get at that thinking through things like proverbs and fables and exemplary stories and um, popular quotations from the poets, which have become um, uh, fabular, really, or become sort of um, proverbial, um, which are all... Uh, things which throughout the ancient world, Greeks and Romans themselves believed belonged to, to ordinary people. So Greeks mm. and Romans were absolutely consistent in saying things like proverbs and fables and exemplary stories. They come up from the lowest classes, from the poor, yeah. from, the slaves, from women and children. Um, so I thought, okay, if we take that seriously. What do, what do the ethics of ordinary people look like? And what I argued was that you can see a sort of loose ethical system in play. You can you can see that the ordinary people do share quite widely a kind of set of ethical ideas. Hmm. And that book was a big survey of those ideas. So which ideas are important, um, which are not important, which are important but problematic? So, for instance, um, friendship is always good, but not always easy. Right. Justice is always good, uh, but very rarely easy if you're poor. If you're rich, yeah. justice is quite possible. If you're poor, justice is quite difficult to get. Wealth, if you're poor, is very problematic. You know, it might be desirable, but it's, you know, generally out of reach and probably will bring you to a bad end anyway. So right. I was interested in, you know, what, what are the qualities in play in people's ethical thinking? And when are they good or bad or indifferent or, you know, how? And what are the, what are the sources of moral authority? Is it the gods? Is it mother nature? Is it society? Is it your hopes for the future? You know, where, where do you get the grounds of your moral thinking from and, and that sort of thing? And what sort of language of morality do people use? Do they talk about good and bad, good and evil? what's necessary, what is sweet. Hmm. Um, they talk about all of those things in different contexts. So love is sweet, it's a sort of natural good, um, but wealth is useful, it's a social good. Hmm. And justice yeah. belongs to the gods. So it's, you know, it's a divine good, but doesn't necessarily work on the human plane. So 
So that book was a big exercise in mapping moral ideas. And after I'd finished it, I thought, you know, what would be really interesting would be to take just one or two of these ideas and really look at them much more closely. In which social situations do they work well? When do they not yeah. work well? You know, do they belong to the private sphere or the public sphere or the economic sphere or to, you know, to politics? To, to, what, to Where do they work and how do they work and when do they not work and why? You know? And right. I was playing around with we, you could do justice, you could do friendship, you could do various things. And then I realized that trust would be a very interesting one to do hmm. because trust, of course, is in it is in operation everywhere in society. I mean, people always hope to trust each other, but it's often very problematic. Right. But trust is also interesting because the word, the main word in Greek uh, for trust, you just mentioned, is pistis. In Latin, it's fides. And those are ideas. Pistis and fides are ideas which very early Christians take and develop so that they mean something very distinctive. Hmm. So I thought I can do a, I can take a wide look at how trust works in ancient society in the early Roman Empire. And then I can look at how one little micro society takes it and does something very distinctive with it. And that makes for a very interesting case study. Yeah. And so that was um, the origin of that book, really. I was trying to, I was looking at sort of trust in general and then trust in this very distinctive little society, which is early Christianity. Yeah. No, I think I think that's fascinating because when we think about kind of trust, like you said, it, it sometimes is it's a hoped for thing. Sometimes it's inherent. We just end up trusting, right? Like there's so many different ways that trust plays out. It's not simply an idea like justice where we have to almost work at it, fight for it. It's it sometimes can be inherent, right? So in that work, when you kind of took this broad overview of what is pistis and fides in that kind of context and the time that you set out. And then you saw it move into the subsect of of these kind of interesting group, uh, starting from a kind of a grassroots movement. Um, what was the most interesting? We'll start kind of with that kind of larger context. What was the most interesting thing that you found about this idea of pistis and fides within the Greco-Roman culture? Ah, oh, well, um, in the sort of mainstream world, I suppose, as it were, um, what I think of as the mainstream outside Christianity. Um, I found that in the early Roman Empire, trust is thought of as working pretty well within families. Hmm. People senses that the family is quite a strong unit and trust between husbands and wives and parents and children, masters and slaves is quite strong and is working quite well. Um, trust among friends is quite a lot more problematic. So there is a lot of discourse in the early empire, which says it's really important to trust your friends. You ought to be able to trust your friends. But can you really trust your friends? Huh. And you've got to really test your friends before you trust them. <laughs> yeah. Don't worry about friends. Now you move up to the political level and trust becomes very difficult. Hmm. So, for instance, it is very rare to, to find anybody talking about trusting the Roman Empire, emperor, for instance. And indeed, hmm. there is a great deal of discourse which says that Roman emperors are really not at all trustworthy. Huh. Uh, so, uh, the, uh, people, so most people's view of, of the, the, the top level of politics of the emperor and his court is that they are really radically untrustworthy. And that's quite scary. For, right. That is probably a legacy, I think, of the fact that Rome has just been through an enormous convulsive civil war. And the Hellenistic kingdoms of the Greek East have just been through 
a pretty violent conquest by Rome or a mixture of violent and, and exploitative conquest by Rome. Right. So in a way, everybody's got a reason not to trust political leaders and military commanders and people. But the other thing I found, which I think is I, I wasn't necessarily expecting and was quite interested in, was that um, trust in the gods varies quite a lot according to your social position. Hmm. And on the whole, the more intellectual and educated you are, the more sceptical you are about the gods. But ordinary people actually trust in the gods quite a lot and are quite positive about the gods. So whether that is, as it were, an expression of just need, they've got to trust something. Right. And if they don't trust their political masters, then maybe the gods are your best bet. You know, maybe that's what that's about. But I don't know. I'm not certain that's all it's about. I think actually through time across the ancient world, popular attitudes to the gods are quite positive, really. More so yeah. than we expect. So, so I trust was working or not working quite differently in different parts of the social world. That's that's very fascinating to me that kind of the social order plays has an effect or or is played out in some ways in terms of levels of trust in terms of the gods because i think you know putting on my my theo my theological cap i'm going what well, we can see that somewhat play out in our own kind of mm-hmm. culture now right the greater the need oftentimes the greater yeah. the trust of of some kind of idea of god right yeah. or gods and then the lesser the need, a kind of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, if we can kind of pair that together, the more you go up the ladder, the less the need of God may be. And so the less there is of trust or faith or kind of having any kind of relationality with God, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, also, I think we can see that times of change upset people and make people worry about where they can trust. Mm. You know, I think an awful lot of um, our worry nowadays about whether we can trust politics, big business, the internet, um, has to do with the speed of change hmm. and the fact that people feel out of touch with powers that are really affecting their lives very profoundly. Yeah. Just don't know whether they can trust them, really. And, and similarly, in the early Roman Empire, states have, have um, been through war, been through conquest, um, big changes in power structures and who's in charge. You know, it's hard to know even changed in the gods that people are being invited to work to worship right Hard to know who and what you can trust actually it's it's almost the increase of and 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 maybe you can tell me you know the increase of social turmoil right in that time kind of war and upheaval and this kind of turmoil in ours while we do have a very terrible war and unjust war happening against ukraine you know for for those of us in the west it's you know covid and 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 these other things the political tension the political problems we have here in the states particularly right those kind of turmoils increase the distrust of everybody and everything right is that the product of the turmoil or is the lack of trust pushing the the turmoil even farther yes i'm sure that's true the trouble is that um, where you are not sure where you can trust, you don't make relationships. And that mm. that in itself degrades trust. Right. Um, there's a lot of really interesting work on the role of trust in reconciliation after conflicts, after major political conflicts around the world. And one of the things it often emphasizes is that um, very naturally, trust gets terribly degraded in situations of violent conflict but somehow, in order to put your society back together again, you've got to find a way to trust yeah. people. And it is often very difficult to know whether, um, what comes first? Do you, do you try to put into place 
new systems of politics and justice, for instance, government and justice, and hope that trust follows that? Or do you try to build trust in the hope that then people um, will have confidence in governments and right. courts when they're developed? Which, you know, which, which way do you go first? And that is a, um, uh, a really interesting dilemma, actually. There, there was one example in, in your book, um, and I'm kind of throwing this out. It wasn't in the list of questions I sent you, but there was one example in your book that I found really fascinating that talked about a kind of Roman, I believe it was a, a Roman general or someone in the Roman uh, army who was praying for healing and and discussion of kind of faith in terms of praying to the gods for healing. Can you kind of expound on that and kind of let the listeners know like what you found through that? Because I thought that story had such a crossover to the way that we think about healing and the divine today. Oh, now in the non-Christian world, now what occasion was that? It sounds like, um, is it um, someone praying for, um, someone um, sending a friend to pray on their behalf to the goddess Hygieia at one of her shrines? That's a story I tell, I think. Um, somewhere in that book. That wasn't the one. The one I was thinking of was someone who had a problem with their leg, was praying. It was half healed. And there was a discussion about not having enough trust. Oh, That's the one is, I'm thinking oh, of. Oh, this is one of the confession steely, I think. It's steely, mm-hmm. isn't it? I think from um, uh, Anatolia. Um, where there's a, yes, there's, a, um, there's an, a, an interesting group of... Um, inscriptions from shrines from uh, well dated maybe sec- maybe as early as the second but um, perhaps into the third fourth centuries uh, where um, people have done have done something wrong or have got something wrong in the relation to the god and have to kind of apologize for it in order to rectify the situation hmm. there's a woman there who i think has not been fully healed because she didn't have enough trust in the god and she has to kind of admit this and apologize for it and kind of restore the relationship um, in order to be um, uh, in order to be properly healed. Um, yeah, it's um, the whole. Yes, the whole um, phenomenon of people um, admitting um, well, admitting some way in which they failed, um, confessing in some sense um, is a very interesting phenomenon in itself. And I have a young colleague called Justine Potts. Um, in Oxford, who is just publishing a book about confession across the ancient world. Mm. Um, because, yeah, it's very interesting because um, uh, confession right across the ancient world has often been seen as a very sort of Jewish and Christian thing. And if it makes its way into um, Gentile culture, mainstream culture at all, it's seen as sort of an influence from the East and from Judaism and Christianity. But she thinks it's actually a very legal thing. And that actually perhaps the dominant idea is uh, that you admit to something in order to get off the hook. So she thinks huh. that confession steli are about people admitting a mistake they've made to a god in order to get the, uh, for, that the god will let them off the hook, like a benevolent judge, hoping that god the god will turn into a sort of benevolent judge, rather than that they're confessing a sin towards the god, as it were. Huh. And this is quite so. It's quite interesting. So, um, so in the case of that woman, um, she's we might be tempted to hear that as saying i didn't believe heartily enough in the god and that was a sin um but uh my um colleague justine would say actually that's a case of this woman saying um 
I didn't, um, I didn't trust in this, as it were, the divine justice system enough. Hmm. And that was a mistake on my part. And if I reaffirm my, my trust in the divine justice system, will you let me off and not punish me anymore, as it were? Yeah. So, um, Clearly, I didn't have anything right about the story other than some concept. And I, I've read the book five years ago, so I was <laughs> yes. probably blending Well, I wrote it even there. longer ago than that. You know, it's terribly easy to forget. Um, that's fascinating. And I think it has such crossover to implications, things that we talked about before hitting record, uh, a new perspective, understanding of justification, this need for mm-hmm. confession, right? Paul and Romans and confessing with your mouth. I'm yeah. going to be fascinated they, it, by that text. Yeah, it, it gets into your territory quite a lot there. And it's, you, you know, there might be some interesting crossover there. Yeah. I will definitely, is it out? No, it's, um, it's in press with OUP, oh. but it'll be out before too long, I hope. I will have to both keep an eye out for it and start saving up now to be able to buy it. Because um, I'm sure with OUP, it's going to be a couple hundred dollars on my end, right? It might be, I'm afraid. They are not cheap. So we talked a little bit about faith. Um, if, if you could, so, so let's kind of take that turn. Now, if that's how kind of faith was understood to some degree within that kind of larger Greco-Roman or pistis fides mm-hmm. and trust, how did this, as you made the turn in your text to talk about the New Testament churches, how did they kind of both take that term and how did they use it? How did they make it their own? What similarities, what dissimilarities did it have? Yes. Well, we should probably um, start off by just talking a little bit about the word pistis and its translations. Hmm. Because Mm -hmm. um, the reason why Greek pistis or Latin fides, but we'll focus on pistis because um, the earliest, the very earliest Christian texts are in Greek, of course, the text Mm -hmm. of the New Testament and the earliest non-testamental texts there in Greek. Uh, So the very earliest language of trust or belief or faith that we have is in Greek. So let's focus on pistis. But I will just say that everything I say about pistis is really very applicable to Latin fides, which a lot of people will be familiar with as well, because they have a pretty almost identical range of meaning, not Hmm. absolutely identical, but very nearly identical. Okay, so now the reason why people who study early Christianity might be interested in pistis in the first place is because this is the word that we normally translate in English in context where we're talking about Christianity as belief or faith. So early Christian business is, um, most people would say it's faith. Right. Okay. Um, So my first interest in that book was asking what pistis language actually means to very early Christians. Because the thing is that as a classicist, when I hear the word pistis, I think trust. I don't think faith. Hmm. I think belief, I think, trust. Yeah. Um, the reason for this is that the, the center of gravity, probably the root meaning and the center of gravity of Pistis language and Fide's language is trust, trust, trustworthiness, faithfulness, good faith in legal context, very important in Rome, especially. Um, but it then is quite an elastic word. It can mean a lot of other things. It can mean credit in a commercial context. Hmm. It can mean a legal trust or a legal trusteeship. It can mean a proof in an argument. It can mean a token. So um, imperial messengers, when they were riding around the Roman Empire um, on imperial business, would carry a pistis, which was a token to show that they were on imperial business and you had to let them pass. Um, So it can mean a token. It can mean belief, although it's not very common in that meaning. 
and right. it can mean confidence. So it's got a very wide range of meanings. Uh, so there's, a, um, but it most often means trust, relational trust, and it's close relatives, trustworthiness and faithfulness, entrustedness sometimes, loyalty sometimes. Though, but that very those very relational words in mainstream Greek. So yeah. the question I was asking myself was. Um, what does that language mean for the earliest Christian sources that we have? Does it still mean for them what it means for other Greek speakers? Does it really mean relational trust between people and between and God and faithfulness, maybe loyalty, trustworthiness? Or does it really mean belief, because, which is what it would often be translated in the right. New Testament? Or does it really mean faith? And the sort of main argument, I suppose, uh, <coughs> excuse me, the main finding of that book was that I think for very early Christians, actually, pistis language does mean relational trust. In other words, um, at the very roots of Christian tradition, what is most important to people is to have a relationship of trust and faithfulness with God, mm, yeah. not to believe that certain things are true about God right. and Christ, which a lot of people would think was absolutely central to Christianity today, is central to Christianity today right. for many people, and not fideism either. Because trust for very early Christians is not, it's not a sort of a leap of faith in the sense of it's not believing things because we can't prove them or right. though we can't prove them. It's not kind of a deliberate, you know, it's not deliberately taking a step in the dark. It, it might be sometimes a sort of rational risk, like trust between people might sometimes be a rational risk, but it's not a sort of, I'm going to believe this despite the fact that I know I can't know sort of thing. Right. Um, so that's the kind of central finding of the book, in a sense, that I think that for really early Christians, it really is that relationship of trust and faithfulness that's key, rather than believing that certain things are true, that, that makes a Christian. And I think, um, in a way, you know, we have, we've really, we've moved away from that a lot as Christians, from mm -hmm. that sense that it's trust that's really central. Um, but actually, it, when you think about it, it's very intuitive. And it is, I think, perhaps especially intuitive in that world of the Roman, early Roman Empire, because if you think about it, Gentiles, ordinary polytheists, for a start, who are a lot of the people who become Christians, they believe that thousands of gods exist. Right. They believe, right. They believe thousands of things about all those gods, but they don't worship most of them, actually. Quite, you I know, mean, if, if only because a great many gods are the gods of a particular place or a particular field or a particular family or a particular city. You know, you right. worship the gods that are relevant to you, but you believe that many gods exist. You just don't worship more. Uh, even um, if Jews um, can believe, for instance, that Abraham was taken up to heaven, that Enoch um, is identified with the archangel Metatron. They can believe, you know, that, that all sorts of exciting things have happened to um, uh, to human beings have been taken up to heaven and with God, you know, um, without worshipping them. So there's a big difference between believing certain things, believing that things are true and making a life changing commitment. Right. In that world. Now, Christians, people who become Christians undoubtedly believe certain things. They believe that God exists. They believe um, that God sent Christ to save humanity from its sins um, or um, to um, release it from the power of the Satan or expressed in various ways in different texts. Um, uh, they believe um, uh, that um, Christ will return and bring salvation at the end time. And you know, um, But believing all those things is different from 
making the life-changing commitment. And when they talk about making the life-changing commitment to God, to Christ, to the Spirit, the word they use is pistis. Hmm. That cannot be in the belief meaning because belief is not enough to make you change your life. Right. It must be in the trust meaning. That's the obvious other candidate, as it were. Which, which we have this Absolutely. passage, right, in the New Testament, even the demons believe that, right? Like this indeed. kind of... Indeed. The letter to James, chapter 2, tells us, it makes exactly that point. You know, so you believe that God is one, well done you, even the devil believe that. <laughs> right. You know, big deal. Belief yeah. is not the point. The, what is the point is pistis in what must be the relational sense, I think. So, yeah. um, so that was really the sort of the most sort of important thing, I suppose, that I um, argued in, uh, I think I found in that book. Now, especially being uh, a priest in the Anglican tradition, how often did you have to like force yourself to not go, aha, and then want to go write about something about <laughs> the, the current church and your findings of the of faith in the book that you did? Um, actually, I, I my parishioners um, and indeed my friends and relations in general um, have been very tolerant over the years. I have spent a lot of time bending their ear about faith and trust. And, um, but one very interesting thing I found, actually, is how helpful a lot of my parishioners find it to think in terms of trust rather than particularly belief. Because, you know, it's, it's very common for um, someone in my congregation to come to me and say, do you know, I really struggle to say the creed. I, mm. you know, I, I know that I don't really understand how it developed. And all the things, you know, what's going on in the background of it historically. And I don't really know whether I believe that all the articles of the creed are true in a sort of literal way. Right. And I say, yeah, well, it's complicated historically and there are reasons why the things that are in it are in it, you know, and that's a long story. But um, what if you didn't worry quite so much about being sure about what you believe, about, about being sure that certain things are true? What if you can you say, I'm willing to put my trust in God? I think I'm willing to put my trust in Christ and I'm willing to, to, to commit my life to that, to, to stake something on that, you know, um, my sense of my future hope. Right. Can you say that? And a lot of people will say, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I, I would certainly say I trust in God. I trust in Jesus as my savior um, who struggle with the idea of believing that certain things are true. Yeah. So intuitively, actually, I think a very helpful um, way of thinking about faith for people. It's it's really interesting. You have a very thoughtful parishioner who would actually kind of think through that kind of question because it speaks to uh, what the philosopher Dan McCoyne talks about and this understanding of like meaning drift, mm-hmm. right? That that when we think about faith as belief, we have to recognize we're always going to deal with meaning drift. Things like the proclamation of Jesus as Lord in our 21st century mind works very differently than it did yeah, in absolutely. Absolutely. the New world, right? Absolutely. And th- the way that we understand belief is sometimes um, very different from the way that people understood belief in the first century, I think. You know, we have this idea of um, that we, when we believe something is true, it's somehow it's always like the kind of belief you have in a chemistry experiment. Yeah. It's always the kind of belief in something that you can prove empirically again and again. But actually, of course, belief in anything to do with God, indeed anything to do with people generally, is not really like that. It's not that kind of belief, but we, right. we, we find it easy to get confused between different kinds of belief. But um, since I, um, I wrote uh, Roman Faith and Christian Faith, um, I have got fascinated by how 
that what I think original idea of trust and faithfulness evolved into modern faith. Because mm. of course, modern faith is a much more complicated concept than that, because it does include, it certainly includes belief for sure. It yeah. includes claims of things that we know about God. Um, it includes worship. You know, you, you practice, your faith is something you practice by going to church, by taking part in the sacrament. Right, right. By being um, uh, faith is, it's the leap of faith. It's looking with the eyes of faith. Um, it's saying your prayers. It is, it is, of course, the faith, which is partly the package of teaching, but also can mean the religion as a whole. Right. You know? So nowadays, when we say faith, we mean so many, so much more than I think people meant, probably meant at the beginning of the tradition. And I am fascinated by how that developed. You know, it's, how almost, it's almost the, this semantic satiation, right? Like the word is used for absolutely anything and everything. And it ends up losing any kind of real sense of deep meaning, right? Well, yes and no, because I think I think actually, um, at least up to about the fifth century, which is really as far as my competence goes as an ancient historian, that's as far as I can trace the story. Other people will have to take it on. <laughs> but at least up to the fifth century, I think um, it's it's acquiring more meanings, but they are quite definite meanings, as it were. So it is definitely acquiring the sense of, the package of teaching right up to the fifth century when people say hmm. the faith, they tend to mean the package of teaching hmm. they don't yet mean the whole religion that's the thing must come right. later. but they definitely mean the content of doctrine yeah and they do often sometimes mean believing that certain things are true very interesting um it's only really in the fourth century that it becomes common to talk about the true faith hmm you know, so that you know, not just faith. I have faith, but I have the true faith, and that is because um, the content of doctrine has become so fought over, and it's become such right. an issue whether you believe right. the right thing, not just whether you put trust your whether you put your trust in God, but whether you believe the right thing. That um, that uh, people start talking about where are fides, yeah, or, um, or fair pistis, true faith. I mean, in, in such a pre-modern world, I mean, if we talk about those pre-modern, modern, and post-modern, right? In such a pre-modern, how is that? I think so many so many people might hear that and go and think about that through kind of a modernistic, mine's true, yours is not, and that kind of imperial, imperial or I'm um, sorry, empiricist kind of mindset, right? What can be proved to be true through the sciences? Mm -hmm. How how are they talking about mine is true, my faith is true, and yours is not? Like, what is the mindset to say what is true and what is not in terms of that content of doctrine? Yeah, well, that's a really good question. Um, the whole development of the idea of orthodoxy and the obsession with believing the right thing, the obsession with orthodoxy, is, I think, really... Um, a legacy of Greek philosophy. It gets into Christianity from Greek philosophy hmm. because the people who are obsessed with whether I'm right in my thinking are the philosophers. And, uh, but, but when the philosophers, when, when a philosopher claims to be right, to be saying something that is true, what they, what they read really is that they're saying something that is coherent that they started with a proposition and they have um, drawn an inference from it and they've drawn an inference from that and they have, you know, come to a conclusion, you know, three or four steps down the line and yeah. the conclusion follows. It's, you know, they if, it's, if, if you start with a, a couple of premises and you make a, a logical argument from it, you come to a, a conclusion that is logically right. Hmm. And so, um, so thinking, of, so Christian thinking about um, 
about what 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 constitutes what is the content of right belief, what is true, is very much done in philosophical terms. It is it's about well, if we start from the premise that there has to be there has to be an unmoved mover, say there has to be some kind of power at the beginning of the world that gets the world going. So we're going to call that God. So if we start from the idea there must be a God, you know, um, then then what um, what does God have to be like in order to be um, credible, to be kind of yeah. imaginable? And then you say, and then you start getting into well, clearly God must be all powerful because God made everything happen um, in the first place, created everything, and clearly God must be um, good because um, why would God create? Why would why would a God create something that was bad? You know, God right. Was a, right so you end so you gradually you sort of draw out the inferences from your starting assumptions and you end up with the idea that you have one single or powerful or good just loving god all these sort of classical claims of doctrine yeah. which are really classical claims of greek philosophy adapted to christianity um and they're claimed to be true because they sort of they 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 follow with a good tight philosophical argument from yeah. a basic assumption that's which, the kind of truth really which seems like a, a really far cry from that relational trust yeah. uh, that you were discussing before. Like what, for you, what would you say is that, like, how can you explain that difference? This, what they called relational trust as pistis and then kind of this philosophical, Greek philosophical proclamations about yeah. God that became faith. Yeah. So, so I think um, the idea that you, can and should put your trust in God and Christ at the very roots of Christian tradition um, comes out of two things, really. It starts from an assumption that God exists and has certain qualities. So, um, you know, and that's because, you know, all the earliest Christ confessors are Jewish and they they simply belong in a tradition where the reality of God and the goodness of God are taken for granted. So they're not, they're never questioning that. You know, where, as it were, later... Christian theologians will start by making an argument for God along the lines of Christian philosophy. The very earliest Christians never do bother to do that because they come from a tradition in which God is taken for granted. So, um, so you, you start with, you, you know, you believe it, you kind of, you know, you believe that God exists and you've, you're already worshiping God as a, a first generation Christ confessor, Jewish Christ confessor and apostle, you know, the earliest followers of the apostles. Um, but then the other really key factor is people's experience of Jesus Christ in his earthly life hmm. and people's resurrection experiences and then people's experience of meeting the people who had the resurrection experiences. So it's a combination of the tradition that you inherit and therefore we don't really question about right. God, and the impact of these incredibly powerful new experiences around the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. Hmm. And Again, you know, people, the, the very earliest Christ confessors, they don't stop and think, well, can we prove the resurrection? Right. Because they experience the resurrection. They, you know, they, what we don't know what really quite what experience they had, but clearly they had an experience which was absolutely ungainsayably, life transformingly, overwhelmingly powerful. Right. So powerful that, you know, it, it, it changed their lives forever and they never wavered from it you know extraordinarily powerful so and it they never questioned it any more than you would question you know the evidence of your own eyes or ears really it was that direct it was a it was they formed what philosophers sometimes call basic beliefs you know the kind of thing yeah the kind of thing that you the, the kind of response you have to touching something 
or right. seeing something. It's just right. totally instinctive and fundamental. So that's the kind of thing. And um, and when someone like Paul talks about his belief in the resurrection or Christian's belief in the resurrection, he's talking about the power of the impact of that experience, plus the fact that that experience um, kind of fits with people's sense that Jesus in his lifetime was an extraordinary person. Plus yeah. it fits with, they know a few prophecies, you know, they, they have this experience of Christ and then they look back at the Hebrew scriptures and they think, oh, well, that kind of fits with that prophecy. Yeah, right. Kind of makes sense. It all fits together, you know, and that's the kind of knowing and believing that they have at that very early time. Um, and the, that, that combination of inherited um, trust in God's belief in God's faithfulness to Israel and the impact of those experiences of Jesus together bring people to put their, you know, to, to commit themselves, to be willing to put their trust in this new right. God and commit themselves to God. So belief is in there, but it's, but it's that kind of, it's the power, it's the impact of, of your existing sense of God, plus the incredible impact of Christ, of, G of Jesus Christ, that just, it's, it's a kind of chemical reaction in people's yeah. lives, really. It's it's almost as if, and, and you can tell me if I'm wrong and kind of like thinking about all these things that you've said, it's almost as if as the, as the need moved or as the kind of Christian culture moved away from thinking about things in, um, and, and I'm forgetting the word that Pete Inns uses for this, but this idea of there are many gods, but only one to be worshiped, right? As it moved away from that to a, a true kind of monotheistic, there is just one God, understood as the kind of Trinitarian kind of theology that was going to come a little bit later, that as that move happened, there became a greater need to prove that God amidst the realities of the other ones. And so all of a sudden we start getting these truth claims and we had to start using Greek philosophy to prove, no, no, we are right and we can show how we're right. Yeah, um, I mean, except, I mean, my sense is that um, I'm, I'm not sure that that movement was inevitable. Hmm. I think it comes from two places, really. Um, partly it comes from the fact that early Christians found themselves under attack by philosophers. Hmm. Philosophers thought hmm. that early Christianity was really vulgar, <laughs> a really just bad just a bad idea really i mean aside from the fact they didn't believe it they just thought it was a it was just vulgar really you know the crucified criminal rumors of resurrection it's just you know they thought it was naff really um and christians found that christians wanted to defend christianity and they one of the ways they did it was by taking on the language of philosophy and attacking philosophers in their own terms hmm. and i think hmm. if um if philosophers had actually been a bit cooler and not attacked Christianity that that might not have happened but I think there is another factor at play which is that um as Christianity spread through the second century I'm thinking here um some Christian converts and then some people born Christians um also belonged to the upper classes and they had a really good education and some of them had a philosophical education and so they got interested they just got interested in seeing whether they could make some kind of accommodation between Greek philosophy, which they liked and admired. Right. 
and Christianity, which they were committed to. And I think you can really see that in someone like Clement of Alexandria. Mm, yeah. Clement is a very sincere Christian, but he's also a really good philosopher and he's a Platonist. And he kind of wants to see whether he can get those two things side by side. Hmm. Is there a way of right. actually kind of making those both those things right somehow? Because he really right. likes both, you know. And so he starts talking about Christianity in these very Greek philosophical terms. Now that, you know, it needn't have happened. I mean, I think it's a very interesting question. If, if, if the center of gravity of the development of very early Christianity had been further west, say, in the Latin speaking half of the empire, say, which was not so, where philosophy was not quite so big, right? Know, it was not quite so, so culturally big and, and, and appealing. Um, would it Christianity have developed in quite the same way? Or alternatively, if Christianity had really taken off slightly further east, you know, right. in, into Syria and maybe the, the, the east edges of the Roman Empire, would it have been quite, would it have developed like it did? I think it probably wouldn't because those places, philosophy, Greek philosophy in this period wasn't, just wasn't so important. And yeah. I think the, the way it developed had a lot to do with precisely where it developed and the fact that it's kind of early center of gravity was yeah. really... Um, you know, um, Greece, Asia Minor, Alexandria a bit later, you know, places and, that were real seats of Greek philosophy. And, and maybe we see that somewhat in the mystics and pushing back against that a bit, right? Like this kind of Platon, Platonist, Neoplatonist philosophy, the mystics kind of pushed back quite a bit, right? Like to mm -hmm. kind of say, you're trying to order this all in this way that you just can't do. Yeah. but And I think there are places... I think there are there are places, even in the church fathers, um, where you can see the tension in a quite an interesting way. Um, so, for instance, if in um, as late as the later fourth century, if we look at the writing of Augustine, say in the West, and of the Cappadocians, Gregory of Nyssa especially, um, mm -hmm. in the East. Uh, now, Gregory has a pretty low view of pistis. He thinks that faith is kind of the the, the the elementary thing that you start from and what you are really aiming for is knowledge of God. Yeah. Very, right. Very keen on the knowledge. And in this, he is in a line that starts with Clement, although Clement is more positive about trust actually. Um, but even so he thinks basically we're ultimately we're after knowledge of God. Um, Origen thinks that even more strongly. Gregory thinks it even more strongly. He's got a pretty low view of faith, which I, I've got to say would have made someone like Paul turn in his grave. Absolutely. Mm. Um, uh, but interestingly, if I've been doing some work recently on Augustine and on Augustine's treatment of fides. And actually, we think of Augustine as being all about belief, very interested in belief. He he's, one of, he's the person who defines faith for the Western right. church as fides qua and fides qua. And fides qua is the faith that we believe, the body of doctrine. And fides qua is the faith by which we believe, which is how we tend to translate it. And we think he's all about the belief, really. Right. And it's not, but it's not actually true. When you start, when you look closely at his use of Fide's language, everywhere he lapses in talking about trust. He just thinks belief is founded on trust and trust in people, in your teachers, in the institution of the church, in the handed down tradition, hmm. in your relationship with God and Christ. Actually, he's really interested in trust. And he, even though he admired Platonism, he thought of himself as a bit of a philosopher. 
only a bit of a philosopher, if you ask me. Um, you know, he was interested in that stuff, but actually, he's not saturated with that way of thinking in the way that right. Eastern writers are. He's he is actually really still very interested in trust, and I suspect that's the Western Church actually, to the end of antiquity, is still more interested in the trust aspect of faith, um, which is I think quite unexpected. Really, it's not what we have tended to think. I think, I think, you just ruined Gregory of Nyssa for me. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, that's and, awful. In a way, very important man, just not really interested in faith. No, no, no. Ruined in the fact that I've done so much on his grasp of faith and going into darkness and kind of thinking about faith in that way. I've never, I've never thought of him in terms of kind of this low view of faith and this pursuit of knowledge, as much as I've always thought of him as a low view of faith in terms of of knowledge, but with the inability to ever grasp knowledge fully. But now I might have to go back and do some more reading on Greg of Nyssa. Well, I, I, am, I am oversimplifying. Um, <laughs> but, um, and he is a very complex and a very, very interesting thinker. But um, I don't think he's, I don't myself think his understanding of faith is, is I mean, I, yeah, well, I think it's relatively low. And it is relatively much about belief. It's, he's not that interested in the relation. If if you're up for it, I might shoot you an email later <laughs> after <laughs> this. this offline. Yeah, because yeah, because no one, everyone's like, who cares what Aaron thinks about Gregory? Um, so people. so as as we kind of like, because I want to be respectful of your time, as we kind of wrap up, I mean, if you had to kind of say, like, okay, I've done all this. We didn't even get into your new work, uh, which I I still need to purchase myself, but your new work on a theology of trust in the New Testament. If, if you had to kind of summate, okay, here was faith, then here is faith now, how should we uh, theologically maybe think about faith that will kind of help us be more, more faithful, as it were, right, towards what this term, what pistis means, what fides means, what the New Testament authors are trying to get at telling us about our life with Christ? Yeah, yeah, you've captured it exactly, because... Um, Roman faith and Christian faith was an entirely historical study. It was about how those early writers thought. Um, and having written that, I really thought, well, if trust is important to early Christians, it's worth thinking about a bit more for us. And, you know, why might it matter to us? And that's why this more recent book on the theology of trust has come about. So and that's out with OUP in June. So it's not quite out yet. But um, so that so the new book is organized in a very different way. And I think about um, uh, people's relation, trust relationship with God and then with the risen Christ as an um, exalted Christ um, and then the role of trust in the in atonement. So I've got a sort of new little trust based theory of atonement I've been developing. Hmm. And then I'm interested. Oh, interesting. In how people's relationship with what, what the disciples relationship with Jesus was in his earthly life and the fact that they. You know they fail in trust all the time but that seems to be actually kind of okay as a starting point at least so i'm, I'm quite interested in what i've called the adequacy of imperfect trust you know between people huh. and God. um and then i've looked at um all the ways in which people are entrusted by god uh with things with work to do for the world with preaching the gospel healing people teaching but also with just looking after creation with stewardship um, and I think the idea that we are entrusted with things by God is quite important. Um, so, um, so I've looked at some some quite different things from the previous book and, and in a different way for exactly the reason you're um, uh, pointing out that I'm interested in why it might matter to us. And I suppose just to pull out one or two kind of headlines. One thing is 
interestingly enough, there is almost no modern theology of trust. It's, you know, there's masses yeah. of modern theology of the much more complex concept of faith. Mm-hmm. And there is modern theology of hope and of love and things like that, but really not of trust. Very little. There's a wonderful Italian scholar called Pierangelo Sequeri. And there's a German scholar called Ingolf Dalfert, who's done um, some very interesting work from a more philosophy of religion point of view, but there's not very much. Um, so, um, so I'm trying to make a contribution to sort of thinking theologically about the New Testament and trust. Yeah. Um, and however, what there is, is quite a lot of popular interest in trusting God. Loads of popular books called things like, you know, God right. is faithful, always trusting God and stuff. Um, but they do have a little bit of a tendency to say um, you can you can just sort of lie back in the bosom of the almighty and let God save you and and find you a parking space and you know generally look after you and make sure you never suffer and I I think um, that New Testament writings point us to a more dynamic picture than that really it's not just about our sort of lying back and resting on God it is that in the Christ event God has taken a big risk on humanity by sending a highly non-typical Messiah figure. Yeah. And to to reconcile humanity with God through the restoration of trust is what I've suggested. But because Jesus is a very non-typical Messiah, um, that's that's an act of trust by God for a start, that human beings will recognize Jesus either before or after the resurrection, that they will respond. Um, and Jesus himself has to trust people to respond to him. Um, and so God's the new thing that God has done through Christ. It's a risk. It's a it's an act of hope on God's part. Yeah. Um, and it, which which asks for an answering trust from us for the sake of partnership, for the saving of the whole world. Yeah. And so it, it's it's risky. It's dynamic. It's really a partnership. Um, it's not just that God is reliable, like a really good car and will never let us down. Right. It's that God right. invites us into a partnership in which we have work to do. Yeah. Um, and we are entrusted with a lot of stuff. Um, and, um, and, and so to me, it's a, it's a more, yeah, it's a more dynamic partnership than a sort of a lie back and trust kind of uh, deal as it were. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I've also, I think really emphasized that, in that relationship, New Testament writings and later ancient Christian writings too, are very clear that trust is a long game. Hmm. You know, you put mm-hmm. your trust in God and Christ, and that's a starting point, but actually then you have to maintain it. You have to go on being faithful. You have to go on being loyal. Right. Um, and ideally, you have to get better at it. You have to progress in trust. That's quite a strong theme, even from Paul Amos, right until the end time. Yep. And sometimes you will fail All the, you know, the disciples failed. They were frightened. They were skeptical. They doubted. They ran away. You know, they failed. And, and, but it was that was not a deal breaker. Yeah. People can fail and they can be readmitted to a community. And until the end time. People just have to keep trying to trust and keep trying to trust a bit better. And we're yeah. not perfect and we don't understand everything and we will fail. And actually, that is OK with God. It's enough yeah. to make us up. So I think actually from the New Testament offers us a very optimistic picture of, um, of, of trust that the imperfect human trust is it's good enough as a starting point. And if we accept that the trust that's been placed in us and we do our best to respond, that's good enough as a starting point. Yeah. Wow. So I'm emphasizing those sort of things. And that's, 
it is even in our, our our world if i give it this language is so much more of a beautiful picture of this understanding of relationality between god and humanity than what's been given to us in the past or kind of traditioned into and i think if we think about how do we best speak to a generation that is kind of post postmodern or whatever we are moving into this kind of more aesthetical and beautiful picture of god and humanity speaks much grander to people than this kind of often distant and cold reality of what you have to do and what God has to do. And, and, and there's this odds and we've got to fix, you know, this very kind of competitive reality between God and humanity, rather than a much more beautiful picture of what God is already at work and doing within humanity that we often ignore. Right. I I think, uh, that, that has my own, I'm ready for the book to come out now. I'm going to delay. Well, I'll I'll delay submission of my dissertation by a month just to get my hands on the book. So, Dr. Morgan, this has been incredible. I have 8,000 other questions that I just want to ask. But um, before we kind of wrap up, is there any way? So you have um, Roman faith and Christian faith. It's out, and it's now out in paperback, which significantly reduces the cost. So if anyone's interested in that historical kind of piece, and then we've got the Theology of Trust, which is coming out in June just kind of yes. more for the modern idea for the church, right? Yeah. Um, any other ways that people can connect with your work? You talked about another book here uh, that I did not know about in 2007. Anything else that people can connect with if they're interested in um, what you're working on? Uh, well, um, uh, not many, I'm afraid, because I am not a great user of social media, I'm afraid. So I don't have much of a social media presence. Um, I do have the odd one or two um, uh, podcasts, um, you can uh, you can look around. There are a few podcasts in the ether about ancient ethics and about faith. Um, and another one that will come out from St. Andrews, from the Logos Institute in St. Andrews oh, wow. in yeah. June, I think, um, uh, which is talking about more about the more recent books, so a bit differently from the things we've been talking about today, but not unconnected. Um, and um, and then I'm I'm just now quite close to finishing Um, the sort of sequel to Roman faith, which takes the story of the development of Christian faith up to the fifth century. Um, So that will come out. It'll be another couple of years. So it'll be a while. But um, uh, but there'll be one or two other things I have. I have at this point promised so many people that when I've written these three large books, I'll do a sort of compact one volume (laughs) overview, uh, which will which will be in an inexpensive paperback that people might actually want to read. So at some point I shall do that, but I haven't done it yet. Which is probably even harder, right? Taking all that work and putting it into a a small cup. Yeah, it might be, but we'll see. Dr. Morgan, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been a pleasure. I hope it's got everyone kind of thinking and spinning, hopefully even providing for so many people a different way of thinking about faith that as your parishioner uh, is helpful so it's a real pleasure to talk to you thanks very much indeed Uh, hopefully we'll have you back again Mm